to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. Uh, it's my joy to be back with you. I haven't been preaching for a couple weeks, so um, you know what that means. I'll probably preach way too long this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here for this sermon series that we're engaged in. Um, and, and to start off this morning, I want to tell you that my daughter absolutely loves the movie Moana. I may have mentioned this in here before. Anybody ever seen Moana? Who's seen Moana? Or let me say, who has not seen Moana? I've seen it for you, all right? I've seen it for you like 80 times. My daughter loves Moana. If you don't know the story of Moana, it's, it's a Pixar, or a Disney movie rather, uh, about a, a, a young Polynesian girl who's the princess of her island, and uh, her island provides her people with everything they need. They use the coconuts, and they fish in the lagoon, and, and, and then one day the island gets sick. And so she decides that she's going to try and save uh, her people in her island, and so uh, she hears a legend from her grandmother, uh, who's kind of crazy, and she says, there's this demigod named Maui, and he stole the heart of Tefiti, which is like the earth goddess, and if you go to Maui and make him put the heart of Tefiti back, then, then maybe that will restore the island, so she sets off, and it's this wonderful story of a, a, a sort of a girl becoming a woman, and learning how to trust in herself, and learning how to lead for herself, and, and learning how to follow the stars wherever they guide her, and, and it's really powerful, and as a father of a daughter, I love seeing my daughter, uh, you know, loving Moana, I love that, um, if you've got kids, it's a fantastic movie, I encourage you to watch it, the music is great, Lin-Manuel Miranda from, you know, the, the Broadway musical Hamilton, he did the music for the movie, so it's fantastic, my daughter doesn't care about any of that. None of it. She doesn't care about any of it. She doesn't follow the plot, really. She doesn't understand the layers of depth of the characters. She doesn't understand character art. She doesn't understand any of this stuff. It's meaningless to her. Moana is not a story about a young Polynesian girl for my daughter. Moana is the story of a pig named Pua who has a friend named Moana who goes out and saves the world. That's my daughter, Andy. And that's Pua under her arm. She loves Pua so much that Dad spoiled her and went and got a Pua off of Amazon a few weeks back. And she sleeps with it every night and carries it everywhere, and I'm in love with her. God, look at that. Let's just not preach. Let's just look at my daughter all morning. How's that sound? Um, so my daughter, she'll, she'll step in and out for the movie, but it's the first 30 minutes. For some reason, the pig's only in the first 30 minutes of the movie, and then he just, like, isn't in the rest of it, which I'm like, I had to write a letter to Disney. Hey, thanks for that, Disney. Like, that was the one part of the movie my daughter loved, and you just wrote him out. So uh, for her, that's, like, the part of the movie that she really cares about. She sits down, and she watches it, and she does not move a muscle as long as the pig is on the screen. And once he's gone, then all bets are off. She'll get up, and she'll play, and she'll come back and watch, and she'll sing, and then she'll get up and dance, and then she'll play, and then, you know, she's sort of halfway watching, but not entirely. You know, she likes the movie Moana, but she loves Pua the Pig, yeah? So I love the Bible. I love every verse in the Bible. I, you know, I think it's all God-breathed. I think it's powerful. It's sacred. It's scripture, yes. But there are some parts of the Bible that are, for me, kind of like Pua the Pig, <laughs> They're, they're why I show up. They're the parts of the Bible that I keep coming back to. They're the parts of the Bible that just grip me. Like, in, like a, a deep part of my soul is just gripped by them and does not let go. And, and, and it's not that I don't like the rest of the Bible. It's great. It's good. I, I get up and I'll read it and sometimes I'll go off and dance and I'll come back and read it and I'll go off and play and I'll come back and read it. But there are some scriptures that grip me like Pua the Pig and I can't look away. And Psalm 139 is one of those scriptures. And that's the scripture that we are going to study. We studied it last week, we're going to look at it this week, and we're going to look at it more next week. It's 
maybe my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. If you haven't spent a lot of time in the Psalms, they're wonderful. You can do a Bible reading plan to read a Psalm a day. Uh, it's a great way to read through some of the absolute most beautiful poetic portions of Scripture you can imagine. And Psalm 139 to me is the, is the peak. Uh, because what Psalm 139 is getting at is it's getting the, the, the heart of the question for Psalm 139 is what does it mean to be in relationship with the God of the universe? What does it mean for us to be in relationship, not just to worship, not just to, not just to deify, not, not just to bring, you know, uh, sacrifices to, what does it mean to be in relationship with the God of the universe? Now, that's a big question. And Psalm 139, I think, gets at the heart of what that means, maybe more than any other chapter. You know, you might say, Scott, what, you know, don't you love the Gospels more? I, I think Psalm 139 is absolutely a Jesus psalm. If you don't see Psalm, Jesus in Psalm 139, you need to read it again, right? I love this chapter of the Bible. Last week, Stan talked about the first 12 verses of Psalm 139, and that's really all about God. So this psalm could be divided into three acts, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. The first act is the first 12 verses, and that's all about God. It's about how big God is, how massive God is, how God's love is pervasive, how God's love is everywhere, how you can't ascend to heaven or go to death. You can't go to any corner of the ocean without finding God there. God is everywhere, right? This is a big, powerful, massive God that we worship. Okay, beautiful. The second act is all about us. And not just us, but what does it mean for that same God, the God of the universe, the God who is everywhere, the God who knows every star, what does it mean for that God to care about you and to make you? And not just to make you, but to know you in ways that you may not even know yourself. What does it mean for us to be in relationship with that kind of a God? This act today, what we're talking about, that's what it gets to the heart of. Next week, act three. That's kind of about everything. It puts a bow on the whole psalm. So it, it starts out about everybody else, right? It starts out about the world and how much the psalmist hates the wicked. It gets kind of dark. You're going to go on and read the end of Psalm 139. When you go home, you're going to go, Scott, where are we going next week? <laughs> it's going to be fun. At first it starts out, he hates the wicked. Oh, I despise them. But then it makes this fun turn. And we'll talk about next week how... Our relationship with the world, our relationship with others has everything to do with our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with God. So I'm excited about today. This is, these are some of my favorite words in the entire Bible. I hope you're excited. I've got a lot to say about them. Every week, our executive pastor, Kay Eck, is she in the room? Is Kay in the room? I don't think so. Robbie's here, her husband. I won't point him out. Don't want to embarrass him. Uh, Every week, Kay says, okay, I want y'all to, what's your one point? Didi knows this. What's your one point? What's your one point this morning? Didi, I don't have one point. I don't have one point. I got, I got a few points because it's just too much good stuff, and I have the microphone, and I can. Ha! So let's get started. Let's pray before we begin reading this morning. God of the universe and the God of our hearts. I ask that you would bring the words of the psalmist alive for us today. Allow these lyrics to sing within our own souls. Allow us to join in this song of praise. 
and to leave humbled and also lifted up. Not because of who we are, but because of you are. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate relationship with us. Amen. We begin in verse 13. I'm going to read a little bit, stop and talk, read a little bit, stop and talk, read a little bit, stop and talk. Cool? Cool. Again, I have the mic. You don't really have much say in this. Starts with this. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. All right, let's stop. Um, I told you I love these words. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Let's stop with that word inward parts. So um, you might think that this on the surface level is saying that God put together our bodies. Well, sure, we can definitely go that direction. That would be a very surface understanding of what this is getting at. But remember, with Scripture, there's always layers. There's always layers. There's always layers. That's what happens when you read a living text, yeah? There's always something more to be revealed. Uh, Today, we're just going to look at these two words, inward parts. That's how many layers there are to the Bible. I can take two words and talk about them for about eight minutes. Here we go. Inward parts. So we know that the Bible was not written in English originally. Yes? Please say yes. Okay, good. Um, The Old Testament, we know, was originally written in Hebrew, And the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Now, there's a fun wrinkle to this. When the New Testament was being written, when the authors of the Gospels were writing the Gospels, uh, they were using an Old Testament that was actually written in Greek because that was the language that was most commonly used in in, in their societies. And so this this Greek version of of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Can you say Septuagint? Septuagint. We're going to have some fun words. They get more fun here in a second. So if you go and you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, it reads very much the same when you translate it into English. But there's something interesting that happens. When you go into the Greek version of the Old Testament and you read this word for inward parts, you end up with this beautiful, sexy Greek word. Greek language is not sexy. You ready? The word is splankna. Everyone say splankna. Say, God made my splankna. It is holy. It is good. My splankna is sacred. Yeah, it's a silly word. In fact, I'm kind of making it nicer. In Greek, there's this fun, when they write the letter X, that's chi, you actually have to do this sort of like phlegmy thing. So it's actually splankna. That's the real version, but I'm not going to make you spit on the person in front of you. Um, Splankna. Okay, Scott, why the heck are we talking about splankna this morning? I'll tell you why. Uh, The word splankna means innermost parts. On the surface level, again, the surface level, it means uh, your kidneys, your pancreas, these organs that are deep down inside you. In fact, in the Hebrew culture, the splankna would have meant the bowels. Yeah, God made your splankna. God made your bowels. Now, uh, here's the interesting thing. We're going to keep going down this rabbit trail. Uh, In the Hebrew culture, the bowels were not the seat of um, passing gas. They were the seat of the most raw emotions, the the best emotions, the most godly emotions that we could have. And so then when we go into the Gospels, we see this word pop up 12 times. Splanknitsamai. Say splanknitsamai. Man, that's awesome. You guys, we're learning Greek this morning. I love it. Nerd checkbox. Yes. Splanknitsamai. It's this word that comes up 12 times. It always is talking about Jesus. It's a verb. It takes innermost parts and it makes it a verb. It's always talking about Jesus. And it's always talking about Jesus when he sees someone or a group of someones 
that are in need of help. When Jesus is standing before a great crowd, and he's been teaching them all day, and they've grown hungry, Jesus splunk nitsamis. He, he feels splunk nitsamai, and he feeds the 4,000. When Jesus is having dinner, and there's a woman at the edge of the table, and she's asking for crumbs from his table, Jesus feels splunk nitsamai for the woman and offers her grace. When Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee, and there's a huge crowd of sick people, Jesus looks at them, and he has splunk nitsamai. And he heals them. Splunk nitsamai literally means when your inner parts are moved. It's when your bowels rumble. (laughs) But what it really means is it means to feel compassion for another person or for a group of people. So when God puts splunkna in us, right? God's not just giving us the ability to toot. That's not what this is about. God's not just giving us splunkna on the literal sense. God's not just putting organs in our body. God is giving us this something inside of us that when it stirs, when it moves, makes us a little bit more like Christ and allows us to feel compassion for people that we might not otherwise feel compassion for. It's a powerful thing that God's placing inside of us. When when the Bible talks about God endowing us with the image of God, the imago Dei, I think part of that is our splankna. This stuff, this inner stuff, this deep stuff, like take take it literally for a moment, the bowels, they're deep inside you. And yet when they rumble, when they shift, when God moves them, all of a sudden we feel something that maybe is foreign to our human natures. We feel compassion. I don't have to tell you that, that our world today feels a lot more divided than it did maybe two or three years ago for a lot of us in the room. And, and, I'll, and you know, what, what's kind of fascinating to me right now is we love to get images of people that, that are reductionary, right? We, we like to reduce people down to the lowest common denominator uh, because we've been put into these tribal camps. There's so much tribalism today in, in our society. And, and what's tragic to me is that once you reduce someone down to an image or to a label, once you lift up the worst part of a group and make them speak for the entire group, then it's very easy to no longer have compassion, I think it's easy to pass gas, but I don't think our splunkin is working correctly, yeah? I think that our, I think that our country right now, our, our communities, our neighborhoods, what we need a lot more of is we need to get back in touch with our splankna. <laughs> we need to go on a cleanse. <laughs> we need to rediscover what it means for our splankna to be moved and to have compassion for the people around us, especially the people that we don't think deserve it. That's kind of what compassion means, Yeah? It's easy to have compassion for people that you feel like deserve it. Let me give you an example. So this past week, um, when the news came out about um, DACA being rescinded, and I'm not going to talk, I'm, this is not going to be a sermon about DACA, so don't worry. Um, but for me, that, that became a personal issue. You know, I've, I've walked with families who are Im- immigrants. So, you know, I'm, I'm working with a kid in college right now. But immediately my heart turned to uh, my friend Amy Spar, who's the pastor at La Fundición de Cristo, uh, the Christ Foundry. It's a, a church plant, Methodist church plant in Webb Chapel District that actually used to meet in this room a few years back. For several years they met right here. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a mission church that's designed to reach the Hispanic population in Webb Chapel. And I sent her a message, and I said, Amy, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. I can't imagine what it's like to be you this week. That's a very difficult role that you're in to be their pastor. I was feeling compassion. My splankna was moving for Amy. And she responded, and she was telling me stories about families that she knows are going to be affected by this potentially and how much fear there is boiling inside of her community. And she expressed her gratitude for, for reaching out. And, and so I sat with that all day, and my splankna was rumbling. Now, here's the problem with splankna. 
So in the, I said in the Hebrew culture, when it rumbles, it turns into compassion, yeah? Well, in the Roman culture, when your splankna rumbles, it turns into anger. <laughs> and so my splankna had been rumbling all day. And I'll, I made a turn from compassion to anger at one point. And then I made a real mistake. I went out and talked to people. I shouldn't have done that. Um, you ever, anybody else like this? Like, you know there's a certain point, like, I shouldn't talk to a single person today. I should be done with human interaction for today. It's not going to go well. This is a bad idea. But I did. I went out and I talked to some people that night at dinner and, and, and this issue came up and my splonkna was rumbling and I thought that I was acting out of compassion. But Paul says in the New Testament that when I say things and, when I say things and I don't have love, even if they're truth, I'm nothing but a clinging gong. I was banging the gong for like an hour straight, right? And it wasn't pretty. I wasn't proud of myself. And what's crazy is that at that, at that dinner I had a friend of mine stop down the conversation at one point and began to say things that I've said from this pulpit. You know, I don't feel like we've been able to disagree healthy tonight. Uh, I feel like we've just been yelling at each other. I feel like we're just talking past each other. I feel like we're all skewing truth to fit our needs. And I'm thinking, why are you preaching to me right now? I don't like this. I'm the, I'm the preacher. I'm the pastor. Stop it. Shut your mouth. But he was right. And in that moment, I stood convicted. And then the next day, I was reading this scripture, preparing for my message. And I Learned, looked up the word splonkin, and I realized that my bowels had been rumbling for all the wrong reasons the night before. And so I bring this up to say that I think in, in our society, there's a lot of fear spewing around. We had the great gas crisis of 2017, yes? Did we all survive? It's a close one. Um, anytime there's fear, it's easy to go tribal. And it's easy for our splonkna to rumble, but in the wrong way, and for that anger to start to build. And I think the only antidote to that is for us to remember that our splonkna was put there by God to be used for compassion, especially compassion for people that we don't understand and we don't really like in the moment. We don't want them, we don't want to have compassion for them. We just want to have anger. But that's not what splonkna was designed for. Yeah? So let's use our splonkna wisely. If our bowels are going to rumble, let it be for compassion. Amen? That's where we're starting today. It's not getting better, okay? Um, let's keep reading. In verse 14, I praise you, the psalmist says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Let's stop there. So I am a sucker. Tell me if you're like this. I am a sucker for personality inventories, yeah? Who else in the room? Yeah, Myers-Briggs, Strengths Finder, Berkman, Disk Inventory, Enneagram. I've done them all, and I've read all the books. I love them. Am I the only, I saw like April, yeah, okay, good. There's a few other, like the other team leaders and like managers, and they're like, oh my, doesn't my team love this? No, most of them hate it, I think. <laughs> most of them hate it. Um, because like these personality inventories, they're, they're impressive, but they all kind of do the same thing. They, they ask you questions about yourself, you tell it about yourself, then it tells you what you said. And you're like, wow, it knows me so well. Like, well, yeah, it's just putting a mirror up. Like, it's just literally regurgitating you back at you. And you're like, it's genius. It's brilliant. Um, so, so I love these, these personality inventories. And every time I take one, I, like, get on this, like, train where I feel like, oh, man, this is it. This is going to unlock my potential. This is going to change me forever. Like, I'm going to be such a maximized version of myself. I, I start parroting all of, the, like, the generic business speak in the books. You guys know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and I just love it. I get so sucked into it. 
And then, like, a year goes by, and I'm roughly the same person that I was before, yeah? Like, it, it gets me, but it doesn't really move me the way that I wish that it would. It just kind of tells me who I am. I say that because in verses 14 and 15 here, we learn that the God of the universe doesn't just make planets and stars and tides and moons, but there's something about this God in the universe that was present for when the core of us was being made. And there's something about this God of the universe that understands us at a level far deeper than you or I or Myers-Briggs or any personality inventory is ever going to understand. That God knows our bones in the depths of the earth. Like, do you see the image of like the core of the core of the core of who we are? Like, that's something that I want to know about myself. And I don't know that a personality inventory is going to get there. I don't know if I'm going to be able to learn about the core of the core of the core of who I am and what do I really want out of this life. Not just why do I do what I do and what's my behavior and how can I make my... No, but like what do I want out of this life, this gift that I've been given? What is it that, is going to, that, that I can do today and tomorrow and the rest of my days so that when I'm laying on my deathbed one day I can be satisfied? Right? What is it about the core of the core of the core of who I am that I need to know to make the most of this life that I've been given. Yesterday, Reagan and I, we were um, part of a celebration of life ser service, and um, the man who had, had died, his name was Sam, and uh, he was an incredible guy. Like, I, it, was, it was a service, I, I didn't ever personally know him, but the service moved me, and, and Reagan eulogized him, and her words moved me. And then at the end, there was this, the family had put together a video, like 15 minutes long. I mean, it was long. It was like a documentary, and his wife was doing a voiceover, narrating, talking about memories that they had together. And they put images up, you know, slideshows of, of him when he was a kid all the way through to the end. And, and she was reminiscing about all the great times they had together and, and how fantastic his life really was and how he had lived a life abundantly, and, and he didn't regret a minute of it. And watching that, I thought, man... Like, I want that. That's what I want. I want to be able to have a celebration of life service at the end of my life and for people to go, you know what, I don't think he regretted a single second of it. That's the life that he wanted to live. And I also know that I'm not going to get there unless I get there through a relationship with God because God is the one who knows my bones in the depths of the earth. God is the one who knows the core of the core of the core of who I am. Myers-Briggs is not going to tell me how to live a satisfied life. The Berkman is not going to lead me in a way that leads me to a deathbed of peace. Like, like, that's only going to come through a real, honest relationship with God. I think if we want to better know ourselves, then we need to better know God. And that might seem a little paradoxical, but I don't think it is. I think the more we get to know the person who made us and designed us and put in these perfections and imperfections and quirks, uh, the more we get to know that person, the more we begin to understand our bones and the depths of the earth. That's why, like, th this psalm jumps out at me. I mean, part of me thinks that God wrote it for me. Like, that's what's so crazy. Is there a scripture in the Bible that you feel like God wrote for you? Like it's the scripture you come back to time and time again and every time there's something new there for you, every time you, you, you leave satisfied. Because like Psalm 139 does that for me. Because this, this psalm, at, at the same time, it does two things. On the one hand, you know, I've got a bit of an ego. 
You kind of have to, to stand up on a stage with lights on you and expect people to show up every week and listen to what you have to say. Like, you, you kind of have to. Like, it's kind of crazy, like, what I assume. Like, oh, yeah, they'll, just, they'll come. They'll come because they want to hear me talk. That's what this is about. Now, like, so there's a bit of an ego issue there, right? Like, most preachers struggle with this. Didi, tell me I'm wrong. Most preachers struggle with this ego issue, yeah? Uh, and so part of the reason I love this psalm is it reminds me that I worship. I actually claim to worship the God of the universe, so who am I? <laughs> who am I really? In just a moment, we'll read some words that say, God's plans and thoughts are like the sand. They're so numerous, I can't even count them, right? Who, who, who am I, really? This is not about me. So it's great, because it deflates my ego in a really healthy way. Psalm 139 is like, pop, you know, good, 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 good. Some of us need that, too. At the same time, behind this ego, on the deep core of my bones, is a huge heap of lack of self-confidence. Anybody else in the room? Raise your hand. I'm kidding. Self-confidence. Um, <laughs> behind that ego is this really deep core of my bones in the depths of the earth, lack of self-confidence. And this same psalm that pops my ego, my inflated ego, this unhealthy thing, and deflates it into a healthier place, is the same psalm that says, you were made fearfully and wonderfully by the God of the universe. So there's this deflation of unhealthy ego and this inflation of what God made me to be and what I am in the eyes of that same God of the universe. God understands the core of your bones and the depths of the earth. And there's words in this book that will get at the heart of who you are and what you need this life to be about. That's why we talk about this every single week. That's why you show up. You don't show up to hear me talk. You show up because you want to understand what's inside this book because you're like me and you think maybe there's something in here that's going to allow me to get to the end and be at peace. It's a powerful thing. That's what we're about here on Sunday mornings, about growing in relationship with the same God. If we want to better know ourselves, we need to better know God. Okay, last part. Beginning in verse 16. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I'm still with you. Best line in the Bible. <laughs> I come to the end. I'm still with you. I come to the end of my pain. I come to the end of my joy. I come to the end of my peace. I come to the end of my suffering. I come to the end of my mountains, the end of my valleys. I come to the end, and I'm still with you. <sighs> Every time it gets me. So when we read this scripture, um, you notice the part where it talks about the book of life. In your book are written all the days that were formed for me. Yeah, so th this scripture gets lifted up a lot of times. Um, there's this not debate, but there, there, you know, there's a bunch of denominations in the Christian faith out there. And one of the you know, theological distinctions between several of them is uh, this issue of predestination and free will. Right? Maybe you've heard these words before. So this idea of does God cause everything? Is God the one who ordains everything, including Hurricane Harvey and Irma? Or uh, do Human beings have some say in the issue, and, and is the world, you know, inherently kind of broken, and do we suffer natural evils at the hands of those things? This is a, this is a debate that happens in the Christian um, community for 
the last 2,000 years or so, give or take 100 years. I don't know. Um, and this scripture will get lifted up to say, well, see, this is, this is saying very plainly that God plans everything. In your book are written all the days of my life before they were, and as they were formed for me. Like, it couldn't be more clear than that, right? This is the book that God has. He's got everything in there. Okay. Let's talk about that for a second. Because Methodists don't believe that. Yeah. So come to a Methodist church. You should know this. <laughs> I think. Um, I think. Uh, maybe, I don't, maybe you don't, but I think you should. I have the microphone. We've been over this. So. <laughs> so let's take the image of a book, right? Book of life. I'm assuming it's about this big. It's a metaphor. It could be this big. It could be this big. doesn't matter. Um, I think it's this big. And it's important to keep in mind that God, theologically, is eternal. What do we mean, what do we mean by that? Uh, we say everlasting, right? Not the same thing. Everlasting means to go forever. To be eternal is to be actually outside of time. Yeah? So my quantum physicists in the room, right, it's when you see time as a dimension, right? So you're looking at it all at once. So that's really the book of life. God's able to see everything all at once. And he can flip through, look at that, that's cool, wow, look at that, you know. And, and every word is on it from the very beginning, in the beginning, to book of Revelation, right, New Jerusalem, everything's in there. Now, if I get an advanced copy of the latest Harry Potter book, my name is not J.K. Rowling, suddenly. That's not how it works, right? Just because I get an advanced copy of a book doesn't mean that I am the sole author of that book, yes? Now, let's be very clear. So God begins the book. He starts the book off. In the beginning, beautiful, beautiful. Good job, God. Beautiful start. In the beginning, you know, and, and he writes and he writes. And then at one point, God does something crazy. The God of the universe, right? God's got this. Like, he's the God of the universe. He designed, like, Saturn, right? He understands how to do this stuff. He does something nuts, and he hands us the pen. It's really weird. Like he writes us into existence and then says, oh, also, here you go. What? And what do Adam and Eve immediately do? Oh, uh, we're going to eat that fruit. Oh, my gosh. No, no. I mean, it's a good plot twist, but no, no. So he snatches the pen back. goes, okay, fine. Now you're out of the Garden of Eden, but I'm going to clothe you and I'm going to give you provisions and I'll help make sure you can survive really hard. Okay, great. I'm um, going to kill my brother. No, gosh, no. What are you doing? You know, this is what it means to believe in a God who is sovereign and also to believe in free will. Yeah? It means that we believe that God has the advanced copy of the book and that God is the author of the narrative. God knows how it's beginning and how it's ending. God's going to help guide the plot. The arc of the universe is long and bent towards justice. Yes? And yet, this is the same God who says, I want to co-author with every single one of you. And at some point, I'm going to hand you a pen. And when you were born, God began handing you a pen. And you got to start writing. And I don't know if you're like me. There have been some pages that you wish you could erase. It's a pen, not a pencil. Sorry. Um, and I think the great struggle for a Methodist who understands their faith this way and understands their relationship God this way is when we're handed the pen to realize, A, that we have it, Right? Here's the first thing. is The reason that I, that I believe this is because I think it's important for me to claim responsibility over my own actions. I can't say, oh, God made me do it, or oh, the devil made me do it. No, 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 buddy. I'm holding the pen. I'm holding the pen, right? This is important. First thing we've got to do is acknowledge that we're holding the pen. The second thing we've got to do is decide what we're going to do with it. And we have a couple of options. Number one, we can write our own story. This is not going to be pretty. You might think you're a good writer. I think I'm a great writer. Nuh-uh. Not when it comes to life. <laughs> no. No. We're going to write, I'm going to kill my brother. No. What are you doing? Stop it, right? 
Um, David, what are you going to write? I'm going to marry Bathsheba. No, stop. Stop it, David. This is what we do. We take the pen, we write our own story, and we, it, we just muck it all up. Second option. God, would you guide my hand? It's, it's really that simple. God, would you guide my hand? And all of a sudden, there's another hand on yours, and it begins to write things that you're going, wait, whoa, it's like Ouija board. Whoa, where are we going with this, God? Where are we going? Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm moving where? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm doing what? But try that for a second and tell me that your story doesn't turn out a little bit better. I didn't say easier. I didn't say simpler. I didn't say less difficult, more cushy, higher paying job. I didn't say any of that stuff, North Dallas. I didn't say any of that stuff. Ooh, God's going to help me ride my way up to the corner office. No, Mm -mm. no, that's your story. Hold on. When you allow God to take your hand, it's going to be a different story. It's going to be a better story. It's going to be a more difficult story. It's going to be a messier story. It's going to be a tougher story. It's going to be a more complicated story. And you're going to come to the end and be at peace. Because you're going to know that you co-authored that story with God. Psalm 139 teaches us that we are co-authors with God. If that doesn't change the way that you wake up tomorrow morning, I don't know what else to say to you this morning. Wake up tomorrow morning and, and imagine. Heck, go into your, your junk drawer, pull out a pen and just hold it for a second. And just think about that. Today, I've got this pen. And I know what I was going to write when I woke up, but I want you to pray with that pen. And say, God, I need you to help co-author my life today. I need you to help me write my story. Even if that means I start writing things that I don't want to. Even if that means that I'm writing a story that's tougher than the one that I want. Even if that leads to some plot, sh- plot you know, shifts that I'm not a fan of. Yeah? I want you to co-author my life with me, God. This is what it means to be in relationship with the God of the universe as you humble yourself to realize that you're not as good of an author. You're just not. And your story is not going to be as good without him. When you let God into your life and you let God co-author your story, he's going to begin to write things that get at the core of your bones in the depths of the earth. God's going to begin to write things that move your splankna in ways that you could not imagine. But it's a life that you're going to get to the end. And your family and friends are going to stand up and they're going to say, I don't think they regretted a minute of it. I think they loved the whole thing. So I leave you with a question this morning. When is the last time that you put down the pen? When is the last time that you asked God to take you by the hand? And say, God, I want you to write this story with me. I'm going to stop writing the story that I think needs to be told. I'm going to allow you to come into this moment. Now, for us control freaks, it's going to mess with our heads, man. I don't like it. I don't like it. I have all the remotes by my chair all the time. I don't like it. But I know the story is going to get better. Because it's going to get to the core of who I am. It's going to make me more compassionate and more Christ-like in my life. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, I am. I'm going to, start, I'm going to stop farting up my life. I wanted to end with that line. I thought, should I? Yeah, we've talked about enough. I don't know if you're like me. I'm tired of farting up my life. Are you? I'm sorry. Are you? Yes. You ready for me to stop talking about Splunkna? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Let's pray. Gracious God, I'm sorry. 
I took your beautiful, beautiful scripture and I made a mess of it. No, God, I, I'm so thankful that you're a God who has given me bowels to be stirred and moved for you. God, I'm thankful that you've given me a heart of compassion. And God, I ask that you would help to calm my heart of anger when it needs to be calmed. God, I ask that you would point me in the direction of the core of the bones in the depths of the earth. Allow me to live my life in a way that would leave me ultimately satisfied. And so God, I'm willing and we're willing to hand the pen back to you. We're, we're asking you to take us by the hand and to help us co-author our lives, trusting that they will be more difficult and more messy and more profound and more wonderful than we could ever know. God, as, a, as the God of relationship, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is your relationship with us personified. We go in your spirit, and we go in your love. In your sons and we pray. Amen.